When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Passion fuels many emotions and reactions. Love and lust, anger and murder. Today, we talk about one man's fury and how it affected many lives. It's unique, too, because quite a bit of information came out after the trial. Okay, on to the show. Thirty-four-year-old Tara Grant disappeared on February 9, 2007. She and her husband Stephen had argued about her busy travel schedule, and Stephen reported she left in the middle of the argument and got into a four-door dark car. Tara was an executive with a company out of Puerto Rico and left her Michigan home every Monday to report to work in Puerto Rico. She returned home each Friday to spend time with her family, which included two children aged four and six. Stephen, who worked for his father and was also a stay-at-home dad, was getting frustrated with the arrangement and addressed it when she returned home on February 9th. Tara was going to cut her weekend short and return to Puerto Rico on Sunday rather than Monday. This infuriated Stephen, who said she was spending too much time with her co-worker, Lou. Stephen Grant did not report his wife missing until Valentine's Day 2007, five days after she went missing. He told authorities he believed she had reported to work in Puerto Rico and was not phoning home because she was still angry at him. Stephen did contact his mother-in-law, Tara's boss, and a friend who worked in law enforcement in the days before he reported her missing. However, she had not made contact with her sister or other family members, and there was no activity on her credit cards. Tara did not board her flight on Sunday as scheduled either, when he contacted her employer on February 12th, her employer said to wait, in case she was just blowing off steam. When he called Tara's mother, Mary Destramp, she advised him to wait until she emailed Tara. After reporting his wife missing on the evening of February 14th, 2007, which was a Wednesday, Stephen Grant decided to retain an attorney. He spoke with a family friend who was an attorney, and they recommended David Grime. Stephen met with David in his office on the morning of Thursday, February 15th. David contacted the police and told them Stephen would not be coming in to make a statement, and then Stephen left David's office. After he left David's office, he was stopped for speeding, and during the routine traffic stop, 
it was discovered he had numerous traffic violations, including unpaid speeding and parking tickets, as well as a suspended driver's license. He was held for several hours and his truck was kept for five days. After this incident, Stephen no longer spoke to the police directly and would only have written communication with them through his attorney. Prior to this event, Stephen had allowed evidence technicians access to his home and even willingly allowed them to photograph a scratch on his nose. He said he got this scratch working in the machine shop. After this incident, Stephen Grant spoke with reporters and claimed police told him he was the number one suspect in Tara's disappearance. Mark Hackle, Macomb County Sheriff, denied this and said, quote, We have never said he is a suspect. Stephen spoke with the Detroit Free Press on Wednesday, February 21st, for an hour and a half. During this time, he told the reporter Tara had gone missing before, but never for this long, and he would rather Tara ran off with some other man than any type of harm had come to her. Stephen also told the press that he and Tara had been friends at the University of Michigan and were married in 1996. Stephen started working for his father in a small machine shop, and Tara took numerous temp positions until she happened to get hired at Washington Group International, which was a huge engineering firm based in Idaho. The company handled construction projects all over the world, including a potential project in Russia in 2004 and 2005, which Tara oversaw. By the time of this interview with the Detroit Free Press, they had received transcripts of emails between Stephen Grant and a college girlfriend. These emails were also sent to the Macomb County Sheriff's Department. The emails were somewhat questionable, with Stephen seeming to allude to wanting to have a physical relationship with his ex-girlfriend, who was not named. One of the emails read, Ex-girlfriend, you have not changed a bit. Don't you worry about being burned eternally by the devil? Why did you get married in the first place? Seem like the cool thing to do? Stephen Grant's reply. The answers in order are no, love, and no. I think you misunderstood, though. I like being married. I just think of marriage vows like speed limits. Sometimes you have to break them, and sometimes you get caught. You just need to keep an eye on the road to avoid detection. The email continued. Ex-girlfriend. So, what are you going to do about the cheating wife? Stephen Grant's reply. Don't know yet. By the way, she does talk to the old geezer like that. That is a problem. Actually, never that direct. Everyone is not as subtle as me. The problem is she says things in code. And because of that, I don't know what is actually going on. Also, and I thought I told you this about two years ago, she did the same thing with some guy she used to know. Nothing physical, just text and email and phone calls. Investigators spoke to Tara's coworker, whom Stephen called the old geezer. This coworker did not know Tara's location and said they had never had any type of relationship aside from work. Meanwhile, Tara's sister, Alicia Standerfer, who lived in Ohio, was in Michigan posting flyers and working with the media to help find Tara. Alicia and her husband Eric began an email campaign trying to find Tara. After the emails were given to the police, investigators began requesting access to the family's computers, believing it could help, since Stephen had apparently placed some type of spyware on the computer so he could read Tara's emails. Stephen, through his attorney, refused to cooperate. 
On Thursday, February 22nd, Sheriff Hackle held a press conference to announce a search during the upcoming weekend. The search was going to focus on wooded areas in Washington Township, and in particular, a park not far from the Grant's home. He stated that they had no reason to believe foul play, but if something did occur, the quicker they could find Tara, the better their chances of solving the mystery. David Grime, working solely through faxes with the investigators, refused to allow police to have Tara Grant's dental records and the wireless card for her laptop. David said his client had readily allowed evidence technicians in the home already, so if he knew exactly what the investigators were looking for, they could work something out. When the search of the surrounding wooded areas began on Saturday, February 24th, Stephen Grant did not take part. He and the investigators were not on good terms after Sheriff Hackle said to the Detroit Free Press on Friday that Stephen Grant's involvement in the search would be a hindrance. We don't need him there unless he knows where she's at, Hackle said. Stephen did take two of Tara's computers to the investigators, which led to a little goodwill between the investigators and Stephen Grant. However, Stephen's attorney said he would fire Stephen as a client if he participated in the search. Sheriff Hackle said of Stephen, He's not a suspect, but his actions are suspect. He keeps portraying himself as a suspect. That puts us in a weird situation. Unfortunately, the search turned up nothing new. Approximately 150 officers used horses and all-terrain vehicles, as well as searched on foot, to conduct the search, but after four and a half hours, Sheriff Hackle called it off to regroup. As Tara remained missing, investigators received dozens of tips daily, including phone calls from psychics who would give vague information about landscapes. Tara's sister, Alicia, said she knew psychics often did offer assistance in similar situations, but she had no intention of contacting psychics for paranormal assistance. Investigators also received a tip that Tara had been a contestant on Wheel of Fortune. David Grimes said he was shocked the case had created such a national media storm, stating that Nancy Grace had called three times, saying Sheriff Hackle would be on the show and so would Tara's family. David Grimes said he felt they were threatening that he and Stephen needed to be on the show as well, but he was not going to buy into the media circus. Investigators finally got a break on February 28th, when a woman taking a walk on a rural road found a plastic bag with blood pooling in the bottom. The concerned citizen, who requested she not be named, was afraid she was wasting investigators' time, thinking the bag contained something related to hunters, but called the police anyway, afraid it was linked to that poor lady. She had taken a walk in the same area searchers had been the weekend before when she saw a one-gallon Ziploc bag on the side of the road. She had a habit of picking up garbage, but when she saw the blood, she immediately put the bag down and called the sheriff's office. She said she thought she saw more plastic inside, but did not examine the bag closely. When investigators arrived, they found human blood, latex gloves, and metal shavings, similar to those made at the machine shop Stephen's father owned. An animal hair, similar in the color to the Grant's dog, was also found in the bag. This gruesome discovery was the link the investigative team needed to obtain a search warrant. On Friday, March 2, 2007, investigators presented Stephen Grant with a search warrant and conducted a search at the Grant home. 
Stephen Grant was told to leave the home while they conducted the search, so he took the dog for a walk. He attempted to get into his vehicle, but an officer stopped him, saying that the vehicle was part of the search and that he could not leave in it. At the time, there were no charges against Stephen Grant, and he could not be detained, so he just went on a walk. While searching the home, one of the original officers noticed a blue Rubbermaid tote in the garage that had not been there before. Upon opening the tote, the investigator only saw black garbage bags. One of them cut a bag open and found the thin torso of a woman. The body had been dismembered with several sharp blades. Additional body parts were found on Saturday, March 3rd, approximately two miles away in the Stony Creek Metro Park, which had been previously searched. Sheriff Hackle said it appeared an attempt had been made to hide these parts. After discovering the torso, police began searching for Stephen Grant, but he was missing. On Saturday, David Grimes said he spoke with Stephen Grant twice that morning and urged Stephen to meet with him. He said Stephen sounded distraught and emotional and that after the second call, he was sure Stephen was going to commit suicide. On Friday, David said the search warrant had been nothing but media grandstanding and said he would put the search warrant where the sun don't shine. His tune had changed on Saturday when he urged Stephen to surrender and said, it's time to bring this to an end. Once Stephen went missing, Sheriff Hackle was scorned for not detaining Stephen or at least following him. The sheriff said he could not arrest Stephen and was concerned about following him, lest his officers be accused of harassment. Investigators had stopped Stephen a mile from his home prior to executing the search warrant. During the stop, he was placed in the back of a patrol car for 20 minutes, and then he gave the house keys to investigators and they allowed him back in his Jeep and followed him home. Despite his disappearance, Stephen was charged with open murder and mutilation of a corpse. After he walked away from his home, he contacted a friend and without explaining much, he borrowed his friend's vehicle. On Sunday, his cell phone was tracked, which led investigators to the Wilderness State Park about 225 miles north of his home at the tip of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. Aiding in the search were a Coast Guard helicopter and a dog. The helicopter followed Grant's tracks in the snow. He was found in a swampy area under a fallen tree, approximately three miles from his friend's truck. Although it was only 14 degrees outside, Stephen was only wearing a shirt, socks, and pants. He was transported to the Northern Michigan Hospital in Petoskey, where he was treated for hypothermia. In yet another twist of this case, David Grime resigned as Stephen's attorney on the same day he was found, citing irreconcilable differences. He said, if I can't give a client all of my blood, sweat, and tears, it's time for that client to find a new attorney and time for me to move on down the road. The arrest of Stephen Grant was a relief and shock to Tara's family, who had stood by Stephen in previous weeks. Unfortunately, Tara's two children had to be taken care of, and the arrest of Stephen set off a long custody battle. Preliminary findings in the examination of Tara's body led the coroner to believe she had been strangled. There were no gunshot or knife wounds and no blunt force trauma. Investigators spoke to Stephen in his hospital bed, where he gave a somewhat rambling, slightly incoherent confession. His timeline was out of joint because he would stop to apologize or ask questions, but he did confess to killing his wife. In the confession, Stephen said Tara had returned home on February 9th 
and he let her know that he was displeased with her constant traveling. Although the couple had an au pair, a 19-year-old from Germany, he wanted Tara to stay home more. In response, Tara said she needed to leave on Sunday to go to Puerto Rico rather than Monday. Allegedly, she told him, I gotta do what I have to do in my job and it's none of your business. As she started to turn to leave, Stephen grabbed her wrist and she slapped him, leaving a tiny scratch on his nose. He hit her back and she fell, then told him, That's it. I'm gonna take the kids. You're gonna be homeless. You're a piece of shit. He started choking her. She fought back and scratched him slightly on one of his hands, but it had not been noticed previously by officers. He said at this point, he is panicking because he knows he's going to prison, and he kept choking her. He covered her face with either a gray t-shirt or gray boxer briefs he could not recall because he did not want to see her as he killed her. Stephen sent the au pair a text and told her not to come home. He also put a belt or some other type of ligature around Tara's neck to ensure she was dead. He dragged Tara down the stairs to the garage. When they got to the garage, he was going to put her in the truck, but he dropped her. He said, she was too hard to pick up and the belt slipped or broke. And she fell and it was the most disgusting like dropping a watermelon on cement. He finally got her in the back of her white Azuzu trooper and then covered her with a cargo liner from his Jeep commander. About five minutes later, he heard the garage door going up, so he ran to put on pajama pants and went back downstairs to see the au pair walking in. He told her that he and Tara had fought and she left after slapping him. Stephen went to bed and the next day, a Saturday, he got up and ran errands using his Jeep. That night, the au pair slept in Stephen's room with him. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for affordable, sustainable, healthy household products. From home and personal care to premium pantry staples, all in one place. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products like sulfate-free shampoo, hand sanitizer, and tree-free paper products. My favorite products so far are the beeswax wraps, which help me refrain from using things that really harm our environment. I'm definitely trying to reduce my footprint here. I also love their oatmeal cookies. They are so good, such a great and healthy snack. And you wouldn't think they would be, but they are. And actually, their tree-free toilet paper is actually pretty cool. So you definitely need to give this a try. Knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. Small changes in the way we shop can make a big impact on personal health and the world at large. So good news is we worked out an exclusive deal for the True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners. You'll receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they are just giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash TCFC or use code TCFC at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash TCFC to receive $15 off your first order. And be sure to tag Public Goods and True Crime Fan Club on Instagram or Twitter to show us what you got. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. On Sunday, Stephen drove Tara's Azuzu to his father's shop and tried to dismember Tara with the equipment there. He could not get the power tools to work, so he started using a hacksaw. He also used a bandsaw to destroy her laptop. He told the investigators he kept taking gulps of whiskey to get through it, but he finally had cut her into smaller pieces that he put in plastic and inside the blue Rubbermaid tote. He took the pieces of her laptop, clothing, papers, and other personal items and bagged them up, and on Monday dropped them in various dumpsters around town. A few nights later, he put the kid's sled in the back of the trooper with Tara's body and drove around at 3 o'clock in the morning to find some place to dispose of her body parts. At one point, he said he had the blue container on the back of the sled and the sled started getting away from him on a hill, but he managed to hide all the body parts in the woods. However, when he found out about the search in the woods, he panicked again and went and retrieved Tara's torso. That's why it was in the garage when police executed the search warrant. Stephen denied having sex with the au pair, though they shared a bed many nights after Tara's murder. Once Stephen was out of the hospital, he was transported to the Macomb County Jail. Tara's kids had been staying with Stephen's family up to this point, but on the Monday following his arrest, the children were taken from Stephen's sister and placed with Tara's sister. They were under the care and supervision of the Michigan Department of Human Services. The children had to stay in Michigan until the next hearing, which was held a month later. The Grants au pair left the country and returned to Germany, but contrary to what some sources reported, this was with the investigator's knowledge and approval. She continued to cooperate from Germany. In the aftermath of Stephen's arrest, more information was revealed about his actions during the weeks Tara was missing. One of these was his relationship with a reporter from the Detroit Free Press, Hank Winchester. After one phone call from Stephen, where Hank just patiently listened, Stephen Grant started calling Hank at all hours to talk. Initially, Stephen only talked about Tara, but on the day the search was announced, Stephen called Hank to ask him if it would be weird for him to go jogging while the search was happening. The day Tara's torso was discovered, Stephen had called Hank to come over to his house, specifically to the garage, to talk. Hank passed Stephen's truck and police cars on the way to the house, so the interview did not happen. Hank admitted later he had nightmares about it and could not fathom why Stephen wanted to talk to him in the garage. At the next hearing for the Grant's children, it was decided they could leave the state to go to Ohio with Tara's sister. In January 2008, Stephen gave up his parental rights. This left Stephen's sister and Tara's sister fighting for custody of the children. Alicia, Tara's sister, was later granted custody of the two children. Grant went to trial in December 2007. There were some issues with jury selection due to the press coverage, but also, as the potential jurors were in the waiting room, a story about Stephen Grant and information about his trial came on the news. In the end, 
the jury found Stephen Grant guilty of second-degree murder. They decided that the four minutes it took for Tara to die meant that it was a crime of passion and not premeditated. Tara's sister Alicia, who had remained composed, broke down after the verdict, hoping for a finding of first-degree murder. After his guilty verdict, more information about the case was released to the public. For instance, Stephen began calling Tara's phone four hours after he killed her. He left voicemails, begging her to come home, saying the kids didn't deserve it, and he knew she was mad at him, but please let the kids know she was okay. Additionally, his conversations with his sister in the jail were recorded. The two were heard making jokes about Tara's death. Stephen's sister said Tara was manipulative and called her a puppet master. She said all the sentimental talk about Tara at the funeral was sickening. The most horrific thing she said, however, was, What I want to know is, this is disgusting. I realize that for the tape recorder. I want to know if they put her back together, all in the coffin. The two also discussed how Kelly could be Stephen's manager, so if they sold the rights to an author or movie rights, none of the money would be garnished for the wrongful death suit Stephen was subjected to. Stephen was also apparently writing a female inmate at the Macomb County Jail before his trial. The inmate, Jennifer Kukla, was in jail for killing her two young daughters. In one letter, Stephen wrote to Jennifer, I have to tell you that you are the first person to ask if I miss Tara, and the answer is yes. He also wrote to her, Thanks for these chats. They help keep me sane. Another thing he wrote, And to answer your question, Yes, I do miss seeing you. You are always smiling, and for being in jail, you seem pretty happy. LOL. Ironically, he also told her, I figure you might like someone you can just talk to. Because of the publicity surrounding both of our cases, it's not like either of us is going to give out to the news media. At least I hope not, smiley face. Perhaps the most shocking information to come out after the trial, however, was that the kids witnessed their mother's murder. On Christmas Day 2007, Tara's daughter told her Aunt Alicia she wanted to talk to her. Her aunt and uncle sat with her as the daughter, seven years old, told them that she and her brother had seen the fight between their parents and watched their dad kill their mom. She had been too scared to mention it before, but her telling matched up with most of the details Stephen had confessed to. On February 21, 2008, Stephen Grant was sentenced to 50 to 80 years for the murder and dismemberment of his wife. This exceeded the sentencing guidelines, and he promptly filed for an appeal on February 22, 2008. As of March 2010, Stephen Grant had lost the last appeal in his case. The grandchildren continued to live with their Aunt Alicia, and after some additional court hearings, do visit Stephen Grant's family. The Grant home was put up for auction, but reverted to the bank when no one would buy it. Like many other homes where homicides took place, it became a tough sell. Once the infamous background was found out, even homes in the same neighborhood as a Grant home took a hit, selling for less than asking because of the murder. Tara's sister organized a fundraising 5K run, which is held annually and benefits victims of domestic violence. Alicia does her best to keep Tara's memory alive to Tara's children by celebrating Tara's birthday every year and sharing memories of her. She eulogized Tara publicly in an article shared by several media outlets that described Tara as a kid, 
She talked too much in class and their somewhat idyllic life on a hobby farm in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. When Tara found out Alicia was starting a family, she said, Our kids will grow up together and be close, just like you and I. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. And don't forget, you can join us on Patreon for just $2 to get ad-free and bonus content. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.